0: If you work for yourself, save up to 50% for an entire year on the new QuickBooks Self-Employed. It helps separate your business and personal expenses so you can quickly track what you spent for work and what you spent on yourself. QuickBooks Self-Employed helps take the guesswork out of estimated federal quarterly taxes. So come tax time, you know how much money to set aside for Uncle Sam and how much stays in your pocket. Try QuickBooks Self-Employed and receive 50% off at tryselfemployed.com slash so smart, about the Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart podcast, episode. 52
1: The biggest fear of an adolescent Jesse not fitting in is not fitting in. You talked about acceptance. Now to understand how this happens and how this looks and what this feels like. I'm going to have to do an activity. This
0: is is Penn State psychology professor Sharice Nixon speaking to a classroom of students recorded for a video produced by the Ophelia Project, which is an effort by scientists and education professionals to provide resources and awareness to combat bullying and other forms of relational aggression, especially the kind that's often directed at young women.
1: these papers and uh, just keep them face down. And if you would, no one write on these, write on your
0: own papers. So in this exercise, all the students tear out a blank piece of paper. That's the one they're going to write on. And then Nixon places face down on each desk, another sheet of paper with three words written on it. The task is to rearrange the letters to spell out a new word. So if you see the word tab, you could rearrange that to be bat or lemon could be rewritten as melon.
1: Everybody have one? If you would... Just do them one at a time, and I will tell you when to do them. Everybody, turn it over. Just do your own work. And this isn't meant to be hard. These are anagrams. Just do the first one only. Go ahead and solve it. An anagram is rearrange the letters to form a word. Just one. Just rearrange those letters to form a word. When you're done, I need to see your hand raised.
0: And this is where it gets interesting, because about half of the class raises their hands immediately While the other half looks around, astonished, and then goes back to the word on their sheet, trying to rearrange it, trying to solve the problem, but they can't. Stuck, they're startled when Nixon says, okay, never mind. let's just move on.
1: Put your hands down. Let's just go to number two. Don't even worry about number one. Go to number two, solve that one. Again, when you're done, I wanna see your hands up.
0: Just like before, soon half of the class has their hands up while the other half looks around and wonders, what is wrong with me?
1: Everybody's hands down. We're going to go ahead and do number three. For number three, rearrange the letters, and as soon as you do, go ahead and put your hand up.
0: What the confused side of the class doesn't realize is that Nixon actually handed out two sets of tests. One test had two easy words and one somewhat challenging one. But the test they received had two impossible words at first. Actually, they were whirl and slapstick. But the third word was the same for both groups. The third word was Cinerama, which can be rearranged into American. If you look at it long enough, it's easy to see. And here's the crazy thing. After feeling like idiots twice in a row and feeling that weird shame, looking around and making eye contact with the students who got the easy test and seeing their hands shoot up, most of the people in the other group who had the two impossible words first, didn't even try to solve the The third word, even though they could have.
1: American, your first two words on this side of my classroom were not solvable. They were impossible tasks. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I know, but here's what we did this for. I was able to induce something called learned helplessness in the left side of the room, very easily within about five minutes.
0: Nixon then goes through a class and asks the people who weren't solving that third word, how did they feel during the process? And they said they felt dumb and frustrated and rushed and confused. And then she says this.
1: What happened by the time you got to the third word? Because I'm here to tell you, this side of the room is not significantly more intelligent than this side of the room. That was a random assignment. So, what happened to show the differences? Why did you have more of a difficult time with the third word, which was the, which was the exact same word? Brian?
2: My confidence was shot.
1: What you experienced was a term called learned helplessness. How many have heard of the term before? I miss your hands? Learned helplessness is often
0: used... So then Nixon explains that learned helplessness is something that educators understand, something that is often taught to people who are in the world of academia and people who teach students, but most people have never heard of it. Most people who actually experience it don't even know they're experiencing it because learned helplessness is, as she explains, a pattern of behavior, a belief, a thought process shaped by negative experiences. When you try and fail and then you fail again, you start to believe that it's not the situation or the problem or some kind of unfair advantage or a bad roll of a dice that caused you to fail, but that it has something to do with you as a person, something that indicates you'd likely fail again and again and again. So, what's the use in even trying? You, you mistakenly stop, even though success is right there, easy and yours for the taking. You don't even make the attempt because your brain has changed. You've learned a new routine. You've learned to act as though you are helpless, regardless of whether or not you really are.
1: Can you induce learned helplessness in friendships? Because it's tough to actually establish and maintain friends. That's a difficult process. Jesse, um, If a girl sacrifices her
3: morals once in order to gain with the approval of her friends or a guy, she's more likely to do it over and over.
1: Yes, and I'm just going to put this out there just to be explicit about it. If Carl becomes victimized one time in grade school, is he likely to stand up for himself the next time? No, and then what happens the next time and the next time and the next time? What we know that we have been learning about is girls have a cultural pressure to be quiet. Girls have a cultural pressure not to be angry, not to use their voices. And so if someone is victimized once, if Allison is victimized once, we can take that same concept of learned helplessness and apply it to social relationships. And so the moral of the story is it's very important for girls to practice and to be able to deal with that failure. Because our gut response, what do we do when we fail? Our gut response is to close down. And once you close down, do not open yourself up for learning any new ways for relationships.
0: If you'd like to learn more about Nixon and her work and the Ophelia Project, head to opheliaproject.org. Learned helplessness is one of the darker aspects of human nature. Among all the ways we delude ourselves, it's easily one of the most damaging and most invisible. My name is David McCraney. This is the You Are Not So Smart podcast. And in this episode, we're going to explore this strange mental phenomenon by speaking with two experts, each exploring a different way learned helplessness harms us and each with a different tactic for removing it from our lives and the lives of others. You will hear all of that and more after this break. If you work for yourself, you can save up to 50% off an entire year of QuickBooks Self-Employed. It helps separate your business and personal expenses so you can quickly track what you spent money on at work and what you spent money on for yourself. For instance, those groceries you bought for your next catering gig, they're not going to get mixed up with the food you bought for the cookout with your friends this weekend. (laughs) Oh no, because you have QuickBooks Self-Employed and it helps you take the guesswork out of your estimated quarterly and year-end taxes. So come tax time. You know how much money to set aside for Uncle Sam and how much gets to stay right there in your pocket. QuickBooks provides you the tools that you need to help you maximize deductions like home office, mileage, and more. So you keep all of that hard-earned money that you know you should be keeping but you can't keep track of right now. Find out what QuickBooks Self-Employed can do for you and receive 50% off. That's right, half, 50% off at this website. Here it is. Try self-employed.com slash so smart try self-employed.com slash so smart. If you were having a blood drive and you wanted to encourage more people to come this year than came last year and you decided, hey, maybe instead of asking people to do this for free, we could ask them to do this. For money. And we now offer you $10 if you come in and give us some blood. What do you think would happen? You would actually get the opposite result. And I know that because I listen to the great courses, Behavioral Economics, when Psychology and Economics Collide, taught by Professor Scott Hutel, and sometimes economic incentives backfire. And that's one of the awesome things you'll learn in this course. It draws on methods from psychology, sociology, neurology, economics, and he offers profound insights into how humans approach and ultimately make decisions. And he also provides these tools, powerful and practical tools for making better and more satisfying decisions in your own lives. I love this. I love all the great courses that are about how our minds work, explanations about why we behave the way we do. There are 500 courses. Each one, a series of lessons on a huge, big, amazing topic taught by an expert in their field. And they're available on DVD, CD, streaming, digital downloads, or with the Great Courses app. And right now, the Great Courses has a special offer for You Are Not So Smart listeners. Eight of their best-selling courses for a limited time. It does go away and people email me and ask why. And I tell them, I told you it was going away. Eight of their best-selling courses for 80% off. All you have to do is go to thegreatcourses.com/smart. If you want one of these at 80% off, go to thegreatcourses.com/smart. And now we return to our program. This is the You Are Not So Smart podcast. I'm your host, David McCraney. And in this episode, we're discussing learned helplessness. The discovery of learned helplessness was actually a surprise. The scientists who stumbled across it did so by accident during a series of experiments that could never be done today because they were so cruel and creepy. Here's what happened. In the late 1960s, psychologist Martin Seligman, a graduate student at the time, and his colleagues were exploring behaviorism, the power of rewards and punishments to shape behavior, and in one of their experiments, exploring negative reinforcement, they wondered if an animal could be prepared to learn something before it actually experienced the learning process, sort of learning how to learn. The hypothesis was that if you prepared an animal ahead of time, it would learn faster than if you had not. So to prepare a group of dogs to learn to avoid electric shocks after a signal, they did a sort of Pavlovian exercise in which they played a tone and then shocked the dogs so they would learn to connect the tone to the experience. In the next part of the experiment, they set up an enclosure called a shuttle box. The floor on both sides of a shuttle box can become electrified independently and between these two sides there's a short wall so normally what happens is in experiments from back in the day they would put dogs in the shuttle box on one side play a sound turn on a light shout a command and then electrify the floor underneath the dog then the dog would figure out that it could jump over that wall to the safe side and then the scientists would repeat this do a signal shock the dog on the other side, the dog jumps back over, and after a few of these trials, most dogs catch on and can be taught to jump over that wall on command without the shocks. Seligman and his colleagues figured that dogs who had learned to expect an electric shock would learn this at a faster rate than what they called naive dogs who had received no preparation. But that is not what happened. The naive dogs, the ones that had never been trained in any way, they scrambled around frantically once the floor was turned on, and they eventually discovered that they could jump to the other side, and that was always the thing to do. And those dogs, after a few trials, easily learned to jump the wall. In fact, those dogs learned to wait patiently at the edge of the wall and immediately leap over the second they heard the signal. But the other dogs, the ones that had been conditioned ahead of time, that had learned ahead of time, When the floor became electrified, they did not learn faster. In fact, they didn't learn at all. They didn't try to jump the wall. They just lay down, curled up on the floor, whined, and took it. Seligman and his team coined a term for this behavior called learned helplessness to explain what was happening here. Yes, they had learned how to learn, but it wasn't what they expected was going to happen. The dogs couldn't learn to escape a bad situation because there was previous knowledge blocking their brain's path to that epiphany. They had learned to be helpless. They then designed a second set of experiments just to explore this newly discovered phenomenon. In the new experiment they prepared three groups of dogs. One group was placed in a harness for a little while, then allowed to go free. The second group was placed in a harness in front of a lever those dogs then received electric shocks but eventually learned they could press the lever with their noses to end them and the third group was placed in a harness in front of a lever but the lever didn't do anything instead they were wired up to the second group of dogs so whenever the second group got shocked so did the third group but the third group had no control over when those shocks ended instead they had to wait on the second group to figure it out they not only learned the shocks came and went at random but that the lever was a waste of time. When Seligman put those three groups in the room with the electrified floors and the wall, groups one and two learned at the same pace how to escape, to jump over the wall when the tone alerted them to the incoming shocks. But the third group, the one that had been connected to the second group and had no control and the lever didn't work, they lay down and they took it. They had learned there was no point And even though they could escape it, they didn't even try. Research into learned helplessness continues today. And though psychology has learned a great deal over the years, the original insights are pretty much still true. If over the course of your life, you have experienced enough defeat, or abuse or loss of control, even in like, you know, a couple of moments, it doesn't have to be over years. You may learn over time that there's no escape. And since you expect there to be no escape, when escape is offered, you won't act. It's as if the doors to the prison are left wide open and you decide to just stay in your bunk. And there's all sorts of ways this manifests itself. In one study in 1976 by Ellen Langer, she showed that in nursing homes where conformity and passivity is encouraged and every whim of the people there is attended to, the health and well being of the patients declines rapidly. But if instead the people in those homes are given responsibilities and choices, they remain more healthy and active than if not. And this research has even been repeated in prisons. And sure enough, allowing prisoners to move furniture and control the television over time, that improves the health of those prisoners compared to the more strict prisons. And it also lessens the chance of a revolt or some sort of riot or something like that. In homeless shelters where people can't pick out their own beds or choose what to eat. The residents are less likely to try and get a job or find an apartment compared to those that are. So the research is pretty, it's pretty amazing actually. Uh, It's, it's gone out into all these different areas and so many things have been discovered because of this one accident of, uh, of psychology history in which some terrible things were done to dogs. And the good news is, after, now that I've depressed you fully, the good news is this is completely changeable. This is not one of those things you're stuck with. If you can learn it, you can unlearn it. And that's one of the things that psychologist Kim Bennett is studying right now.
2: Uh, My name is Kim Bennett. I am an associate professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of Missouri at Kansas City.
0: When I asked Bennett about Seligman and his dogs and how far we've come since then, she explained that today we now know that most animals that can learn can also experience learned helplessness, but in humans, it's a bit more complicated.
2: Um, if you fast forward to when researchers started to apply these ideas to humans, they realized that human helplessness was, was more complex. Uh, it's not when we experience negative events that necessarily translates to, to feelings of helplessness, but rather when we experience negative events and we explain them as internal, stable, and global, that's when we as humans experience learned helplessness.
0: When Bennett says internal, stable and global, she is referring to attributional styles or explanatory styles, which is a model in psychology of how people come to make sense of their experiences. So let's say a person takes a math test and does really, really poorly. This person might look at that experience and explain the score by saying he or she is usually great at math, but this was a particularly difficult test, one for which he or she did not study and therefore in the future, it might be a good idea to study harder. That's a great way to see the world because it allows you to absorb failure and keep going. But an internal, stable, global explanation would assume that the person did poorly because he or she is bad at math. And all math classes are nightmares. And every test will be at least this hard or even harder. So what's the point?
2: Um, Theoretically, we have a style that we use to help us create meaning following a negative event. It also happens following positive events, but we tend to spend less cognitive energy thinking through positive things. Um, We usually readily accept credit for those things and and move on to the the next uh, issue. But when negative things happen in our lives, it often gives us pause and we dedicate more cognitive energy to figuring out why. Why did this happen to me? So pessimistic attributional style involves people who characteristically explain the causes of negative events as uh, stemming from internal, stable, and global forces, So these are people who have negative things happen and they believe that the cause is internal. So it's something about me compared to external. It's something about someone else or just something outside of me. Um, They also believe the causes are going to be stable. So they're going to be uh, happening again and again and that the causes are global in nature. So the cause of those negative events are going to be pervasive. It's going to creep into other areas of my life.
0: This pervasive aspect, this bleeding over into other aspects of life, was also seen in Seligman's dogs, because the dogs that had learned helplessness acted as if they had deep, deep depression. They lost interest in food, in play. They no longer seem to try to reproduce anymore. And unlike the dogs that were naive, who would sort of resist being moved out of one cage into another, the helpless dogs would passively sink to the bottom of their cage. That's what Seligman wrote. They seemed to wilt, he said, and they even rolled over and adopted submissive postures when they didn't need to, or when it wasn't appropriate. And Bennett says in humans, something similar can happen, but of course it's on a much higher level.
2: I think, um, you know, if you repeatedly experience negative events and you begin to internalize that, um, you know, it's it's like a snowball. You're going to only have more data on which to draw cognitively that says, yeah, this is my fault. It's always going to happen. And gosh, it's going to affect everything I do.
0: So in humans, since this results in explanations and sort of interpretations of reality, it can lead to strange effects on a person's health. And that is what Bennett primarily studies.
2: And when you think about how these self-thoughts would translate to behavior, it becomes almost obvious that, yeah, this would have or could have a negative effect on my physical health. Uh, People who have pessimistic attributional styles are going to assume an independence between what they do and what happens to them. Um, So negative things are happening. It's always my fault. It's never going to change, and it's going to affect everything I do. So this sort of fatalistic thinking can result in feeling like, okay, well, I'm going to go to the doctor, and the doctor tells me I need to start exercising. I need to stop smoking. But I know that what I do or I feel as if what I do doesn't have an effect on my outcomes, so why bother? So if I go to the doctor and I'm told you've got to start exercising and you've got to stop smoking, if I assume that nothing I do really is going to result in positive outcomes, then I'm not going to put the effort into engaging in protective health behaviors that in the long run are going to result in, in positive health outcomes. And so you know, behavioral passivity is one mechanism by which you know this very fatalistic way of thinking may translate to poor physical health down the road.
0: According to Bennett, this kind of thinking can also influence the way families and communities approach their health because it can become a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy. Imagine a person who believes that it doesn't matter what you do in this life. Something's going to kill you. You can't control it anyway, so I'm just going to drink whiskey, eat bacon, and smoke unfiltered cigarettes like there's no tomorrow. Well, that person has a heart attack or gets cancer eventually and says to everyone, see, I told you, and If that happens enough times in a community, a sort of culture-wide learned helplessness can set in, which is something we often see in areas suffering from severe poverty, an attitude that suggests that since it doesn't matter what you do, why not live in the moment? Why not drop out of school or, uh, you know, take these drugs or drink away the night or whatever and so on and so on and so on. And when those lives turn out badly, it reinforces those beliefs that circle that spiral of thinking and behaving and observing not only affects communities but it can also affect workplaces which is what jennifer Wellborn studies
3: um hi i'm jennifer Wellborn. i am an assistant professor of management Um, i work at the university of texas pan-american and i do research that focuses on uh, mostly how people cope with stressors in the workplace
0: wellborn's work has uncovered that explanatory styles and learned helplessness specifically they have a deep impact on how people cope with failures at work, with setbacks in their projects, and ultimately how satisfied people are with their jobs.
3: So especially how um, intrinsically satisfied we are with things like our achievements at work, the amount of responsibility we have, um, and, and things like that. So um, one of the key things I guess I pointed out to us is that um, these attributional styles that we carry with us really are going to have an an impact on our ultimate um, enjoyment of, of things that we're doing
0: in the workplace. These explanatory styles come up whenever stressors appear in the workplace. And as Wellborn's work has shown, those stressors and how you respond to them can affect other aspects of your life.
3: So let's say we wanted to measure someone's workplace attributional style. Um, one way we could, we could find this out is we could ask them to think about um, something good or something bad that happens in the workplace. So let's say that um, in your workplace you, um, you are leading this important um, team project and it ends up just being a failure it, it turns out really badly someone who has a more pessimistic attributional style in the workplace might look at this kind of event and say, you know, um, this project that I led failed because of me. It's something about me that caused this to happen. And so they might think, um, maybe it's because I'm not very competent, maybe I'm a bad leader, um, maybe I'm, I'm not a very likable person. Um, but they're making a more personal explanation for this, this negative thing that happened to them. So, so it's pessimistic in this way, in the sense that they're kind of blaming themselves for this bad thing that happened. Um, beyond that, though, not only is it um, kind of a personal explanation, but when we look at the kind of things that they or how they're explaining this event, um, I'm I'm not competent. I'm a bad leader. I'm not likable. These are things that um, are pretty stable about a person that you don't think that by tomorrow I'm suddenly going to be much more competent or a better um, leader or have a, a totally different personality. There's things that these are things that we expect to. Um, are not very likely to change in the future. Um, and, and then finally, these are qualities that not only might affect um, this particular outcome in the workplace, but I might expect these things to affect other areas of my life as well. So if I'm not very, if I believe I'm not competent, I'm a bad leader, this could affect other types of relationships in other areas of my life. Um. On the other hand, if someone has a more optimistic attributional style, they could look at that same event. I'm leading this project and it, it turned out badly. But instead of um, interpreting it or explaining it in this more pessimistic way, they might interpret it in a more positive way. So they might say, you know, the reason this project um, didn't turn out well is because I didn't have the resources that I needed for my supervisor. Or maybe I just had kind of a bad a bad team <laughs> to, to lead um, in this particular project. And what's different in this explanation of the event is that, um, first of all, I'm not saying that it's something about me. Instead, I'm kind of placing the blame more externally. There's something um, about the the circumstance or something about what other people are doing that caused this to happen, that it wasn't something that I did. And additionally, these things like um, not having the resources I needed or having um, kind of a bad team to lead, these are things that potentially would change in the future. They're not going to be around forever, so these aren't permanent um, aspects and also they're very unlikely to affect other aspects of my life so having a bad team at work um, not having the resources I needed are maybe going to affect my outcomes um, there in the workplace but they're not going to affect things that happen to me um, in my personal life or with my family so in this way I'm making a much more optimistic um, or positive attribution for this event um, that um, essentially I'm feeling much better about myself by saying um, someone else caused this um, probably it's going to change, it's not permanent, and it's really not going to affect many other things in my life.
0: In one of Wellborn's studies, she and her colleagues studied how nurses in a Veterans Affairs Medical Center, a group of people who report very high levels of stress at their jobs, they looked at those people and identified the different attributional styles among the nurses to see how it affected their lives and their work.
3: And um, in particular, we, um, we predicted that if someone has this more pessimistic attributional style, so something negative happens at work, and I say, "Oh, this is um, all because of me. Um, there's nothing really that I can do to change it. Um, it's going to affect everything." Um, that. This might affect the way they that they cope with stress. So if I really believe that I'm not able to change or have much control over negative things that are happening to me in the workplace, when I am experiencing stress, I'm, I'm probably not going to really make a lot of effort to try to solve the problem or try to um, change the stressful situation. Instead, I'm probably more likely to kind of give up and with, withdraw from the situation.
0: The result is that the things that cause people the most stress at work are often the things that don't get addressed and then just become the way that things are, all thanks to these attributional styles that lead to a sense of learned helplessness. Similarly, in Kim Bennett's research, she and her colleagues looked at cardiac rehab patients and sorted out the different attributional styles among them to see if the way they observed the events that led to their cardiac problems would then later impact the way they dealt with those problems.
2: And what we found is that uh, attributing events to stable causes at the beginning of cardiac rehab was associated with viewing your your, uh, cardiac health poorly three months later. So it really does... Uh, suggests that there's something about believing that these causes are going to keep popping up over and over and over that is you know, negatively affecting the way that they are, you know, or negatively affecting their physical health, or at least their perceptions of their physical health.
0: The good news is, both Kim Bennett and Jennifer Wellborn's work, and the work of other psychologists, including Martin Seligman, who, by the way, went on to become a leader in the field of positive psychology, all of these people's work seems to suggest that the good news is that all of this is changeable, <laughs> which is something I really needed to hear because after all of these very depressing interviews, I had to ask, I asked Kim Bennett, is this changeable or are we set like this forever?
2: No, I I don't believe so. I, I think that, you know, that would be pretty depressing. <laughs> No, absolutely. I mean, it's amazing to me how flexible and adaptive uh, the human social mind is. And absolutely, we're not we are not, we're not stuck with that.
0: Even better than this news is the news that there are studies about what you should do to actually go about changing your attributional style.
2: I have seen a few studies that, that have engaged in what they're calling attribution retraining. And so I, th- I think it's, trying to disrupt the automatic thoughts that occur in people following some sort of negative event. So how do you interrupt that automatic process whereby people start going down the road where this is all my fault and it's never going to change, interrupting that process and getting people to be more mindful of the causal factors and not necessarily going to what may become a very rehearsed script that is, it's all my fault. Um, so I, I have seen a few um, successful interventions where, in particular, college students are retrained to think differently. And um, so I think that there is, there is hope <laughs> for people who may uh, be prone to explaining events
3: in this manner.
0: And according to Jennifer Wellborn, when it comes to learned helplessness, we are not helpless.
3: Um, there's a number of ways that we can, we can try to, to combat it. Um, one way would be to um, try to, I guess, create situations that have a positive outcome. So if you can somehow put a person in a situation where they see, oh, look, I, I can control this or I can avoid this negative this negative situation. Um, I think in the, the Seligman study, if I'm remembering correctly, that eventually what they did is they they finally moved the dogs and, and pushed them over the partition and then once they realized, oh okay, um, I, I can do this, um, it kind of gives them the sense then that they they, they can um, have some control over their behavior um, or, or excuse me, over the negative event. So I think if you can somehow um, Try to set up a situation where people feel like or are able to um, have an experience where they do have that control. Um, because it really is, it's just so rooted in our perceptions that I believe that I can't change things, that, um, that I don't have any control over it. So if you can somehow, if a person can have just even um, a couple of experiences where they say, oh, I really, I, I was able to do something here, I was able to take control, I was able to change things to, to get a better outcome. That, that that can be one way to do it. So I guess actually um, having experiences that go against that learned helplessness can help to help to reduce it. Um, another type of strategy that is sometimes um, used in therapy actually um, is called cognitive behavioral therapy is when you try to retrain people actually to um, explain or think about things in different ways. So because the way that we explain things, the way we think to ourselves, the way we think about things have so much effect on our on our emotions, on um, how we respond to things in our day-to-day life, to kind of get at the root of it, we can really try to train ourselves to think about things in different ways. So if you realize maybe um, that you have this kind of pessimistic attributional style, and if you think, oh, yeah, yeah, that sounds like me. When something bad happens at work, I tend to blame myself. Um and view it as something that's really stable and unchangeable, and it's going to affect everything, if you can kind of stop yourself there when something bad does happen um, and really consciously try to change the way that you think about it and think, um, are there other ways that I could explain this? Maybe this isn't me. Are there other types of things that could have caused this to happen? Um, Maybe this is something that I can change in the future. So attributional retraining is just kind of this idea that we can... um, we can potentially change the way that we um that we think about and explain things that it probably takes some effort to do this especially if we are really in kind of this uh, habitual pattern of of explaining things a certain way but at the same time it's possible to do this isn't you know it's not a clinical diagnosis
2: so there's no like cutoffs or um but i think i mean i would say my best advice is you know try and and slow down, be more mindful. And, and this is very general advice. And it's and it, you know, it really applies to so many different things in life. But when I teach, I'm always trying to encourage my students, go off autopilot, you know, be more mindful about what you're doing, be more deliberate in what you're doing. And what I'm afraid is that people get in the habit of assuming that when bad things happen, it's my fault. And so just like I talked about with the attribution retraining, if you can stop the automatic thoughts and really be more mindful um, and more deliberate and think through alternate possibilities instead of just going to that you know, that very familiar and probably comfortable explanation, it's all my fault, Um, you know, try and think about other possibilities. But thinking about other possibilities requires you to devote cognitive energy to doing so. And I think we get in a hurry on a day to day basis. and, And we don't allow us that we don't allow ourselves the opportunity to slow down and really think critically and deliberately about the contextual forces in our life that, that undoubtedly have an effect on our behavior. I, I do an exercise with my students and I, I ask them, I usually ask them, I pick a random day of the week. I say, you know, how many people do you encounter? And I use that word. How many people do you encounter on a given Tuesday, let's say? And, uh, and undoubtedly, I'll get, I'll get hands that are raised. What do you mean by encounter? And I say, it's up to you. And it's fascinating, I get a range of responses. Some people say, I encounter 10 people on a Tuesday. Others will say, I encounter 2,000 people on a Tuesday. And I don't define what I mean by encounter, but really encounter can be in so many different forms. It can be on the road, it can be face-to-face, it can be digital. Um, And when, when you really take a broad perspective of encounter, and you tally up the people that you pass on the road, uh, people that you encounter digitally, online, phone calls. I mean, it it is quite a bit. And the reason I I do this exercise with my students is because we are making judgments about a lot of those people. Not all of them, not all 2,000 of them, we don't have time for that, but we are making snap judgments about a lot of them. We're busy social creatures. And so by nature, we have to take shortcuts. I totally get that. And I think it's a good thing. But when we do that too much, it becomes hurtful. And that's where I think the mindfulness piece comes in. We are busy social creatures. We have to take shortcuts. But we need to be strategic where we take those shortcuts. Because sometimes those cognitive shortcuts will leave us being... You know quite uh, negative about ourselves and you know lead us to to make assumptions about ourselves or or in this case, about the causes of negative events that can that can negatively affect our emotional and psychological functioning.
0: If you believe you're being affected by learned helplessness or someone in your family is, or if you believe that a pessimistic attributional style may be leading toward depression, please seek help. There is a way out of all of this that is positive and good and wonderful, and there are plenty of professionals who understand these things and have methods practices that work, and there definitely is hope and help. Learned helplessness can be invisible, and it can affect us in so many weird ways without us really realizing it for instance if you don't vote it might be because you think that it doesn't matter because things never change or politicians are evil on both sides or one vote in a million doesn't count similar to learned helplessness you can see this in battered women or hostages or abused children or long-time prisoners they all refuse to escape because they've accepted the futility of the attempt what does it matter and i'm telling you It matters. You never know when the next attempt is going to be successful. People can get out of dire situations, they do all the time, and sometimes you do need to seek help, and I urge you to do that, and if you think you know someone else who needs that help, please do what you can to get them there. Any extended period of negative emotions can lead to you giving in to despair and accepting your fate, and if you remain alone for a long time, you can even decide that loneliness is a fact of life and pass up opportunities to hang out with people. Don't do that. Give it a shot. And then give it another shot. When you are able to succeed at easy tasks, hard tasks feel possible to accomplish. And when you're unable to succeed at small tasks, everything else can seem harder. In some studies, they've shown that rats, given the opportunity to escape electric shocks, are less likely to develop tumors than those who are forced to bear them. While rats that are already suffering from cancers will die faster if they're placed into an inescapable shock experiment. Every day, your job, the government, your addiction, your depression, your money, you can feel like you can't control the forces affecting your fate. So you stage these little micro-revolts. You can customize your ringtones or paint your room or collect stamps. You can choose things, and these are all good. Choices, even small ones, can hold back that crushing weight. You are not so smart. But you're smarter than these dogs and these rats. So please don't give in. Not yet. Ichi ni, Ichi sanchi. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. For more great podcasts like this one, head to boingboing.net. And uh, the music in this episode, some of it was donated by Leadlight. It's a band in Australia, very cool people. They donated music and said, do whatever you want with it. Thank you so much. Uh, if you would like to learn more about what we talked about in this episode, all you have to do is go to youarenotsosmart.com. You can also listen to past episodes at SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, and You Are Not So Smart. And if you want to see links to everything else that we've ever done, ever, 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 just go to youarenotsosmart.com. We can find more information about this and both of my books. Send your cookie recipes to David at you are not so smart.com. If I bake your cookie, I'll send you a signed copy. Follow You Are Not So Smart on Facebook, Twitter, and Google Plus on Twitter, it's not smart blog and I'm at David McCraney. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace.